funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. gentlemen welcome to the silver screen video with jonathan and jacob and welcome new listeners if anyone is following up the david thompson episode here uh, appreciate you uh, stopping in hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we did uh jacob how are you doing today how are things in new york is the sun shining you know the birds chirping well you know the sun is shining um a couple pigeons have landed on my window ac unit um you know other than that i mean i don't i don't know really uh what i can say i'm currently browsing the uh barnes and noble criterion collection sales so um you know yeah things are good i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna spend way too much money um I'm, I'm gonna fuck around and buy the whole collection man take out a loan well i'm glad that you've admitted to me and the listeners that you're browsing the movies while we're recording an episode um <laughs> Uh, but yes, for those of you that don't know, Barnes and Noble is having their 50% off sale all the way through 28th of November. So go there and buy them because you should. Okay, dude, $1,500 or no, 1500 movies at $20 a piece is $30,000. Dude, I could, I can do $30,000. It'll take me out a little loan. But hold on, you know? you're forgetting about box sets. You're forgetting about special editions. Also, if you're doing 4K, you're not looking at 20 bucks. You're looking at 25 bucks. All right. So 35,000. Is that fair? I'd say between 35 and 40,000, which seems you know, like a, a totally acceptable amount to spend on movies. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But think about it. Think about it, though. Then I would never have to spend any more money. Or wait, no, they're going to keep making movies. Aren't yeah, they? every well, month they release like three or four more. All right. Well, I think my I think I'm not going to be able to. I'm. You know what? I hate to say it. I think I'm not going to be able to spend forty thousand dollars on Blu-rays. I'm glad we've been able to process all this during this episode. And actually, you've done <laughs> it quite quickly. You did it in about sixty seconds. So. Hey, I'm healing. I'm healing, man. I'm I'm learning. I'm getting better every day. But I will admit, I was browsing earlier. And uh, I think I have about 180 bucks or so sitting in my cart that I'm going to have to trim down. Otherwise, my wife will kill me. <laughs> so um, anyway, guys, browse the collection. By the way, we're not sponsored, obviously, by Barnes & Noble or by Criterion. We just love what they do over there. Like they're just, you know, one of the movies we're talking about is you can currently buy at 50% off today uh, at, at Barnes & Noble. So anyway what, what's really funny is that like the majority of or i won't almost say the majority of our audience but a large portion of our audience is um in the uk for some reason you british motherfuckers really like us and uh all, the, all this criterion talk is basically like completely like beside the point over there because you know i think they ship over there but it's like way ex more expensive and you know they don't they don't have the channel over there and so it's like you know we do all this talking and like a huge portion of our listeners are like we don't care we don't know what this is hey you know what i don't feel bad because i bought a couple of special edition box sets that were only being distributed in the uk and it cost me like 25 dollars to ship a blu-ray so you know what you guys can deal with the shipping because i have already from your country right right and you know you know you know what what's better than the criterion collection uh healthcare uh, so enjoy your health care while we enjoy our Criterion Collection. You hey, you know, let's not get political. 
you know, let's not get political about healthcare. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. I got too I got too excited there. Okay, so guys, we have two movies to talk about today. We're we're not necessarily celebrating Noir November or Noir Vember, if you will. Uh, but we are gonna probably cover cover a couple of uh, noirs, uh, a few noirs this month. I should say. What do you Today mean we're, we're not covering... celebrating it? Yeah, we are. We're this well, is we're, November. Look, we're celebrating it in spirit. But I, all I'm saying is clearly every episode isn't gonna be noir focused, considering David Thompson dropped earlier and he's not noir focused. Even though what? we did spend a decent time talking about a certain noir. So whatever, dude. I'm I'm calling it November. You don't have to call it that, but sure. I'm calling it I'm calling it November. Okay, so uh, my co-host is calling it Noir Vember, which is fine. I think I said that, but either way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I've got one movie, okay? Now, mind you, I've watched a lot, but we're going to spare you guys that because we want to jump into these movies because we have a lot to say about these noirs. But I did watch one movie at the movie theater that I've been reading nothing but great things about. So many people have said it's in their top ten. My best, uh, the best movie I've seen this year. Some people, including a follower of ours that is a fairly well-known director, said it's not just the best movie he's seen this year; it's the best movie he's seen in years. Mm. So I went and saw the Triangle of Sadness, mm. and I'm going to be honest with you, I really enjoyed like 80 percent of it, but it was too long, and. I'm not going to go in. Obviously, I'm not going to go into spoilers. You haven't seen it. A lot of our listeners haven't seen it. But there were some misfires that didn't really work for me that were like really tonally off compared to what he was trying to do. Because anybody that goes into that movie not seeing, not having seen his previous work, you might be a little confused. Um, so if you watch this movie and like it, strongly urge you to go watch his other films. But uh Anyway, I know you haven't seen it. I'm not going to go into detail. Once you do watch it, I do want to have a discussion on a, on the, on an episode about it. Just a, a brief one, simply because there is a lot to unpack, and there are very simplistic messages you can take away that I feel are very reductive from the overall message he had. So I think there's a lot to unpack there, and a lot of it probably even went over my head clearly because I mean I'm not like some movie genius, but some of it's easy to follow. Some of it's not. Um, so I'm looking forward to you watching it so we can talk about it. I don't know if it's going to find its way in my top 10, but uh, who knows? Yeah. I mean, I'm very excited about it, obviously. I mean, you know, obviously it won the, uh, the Palm door at can this year. Um, I, uh, I'm a little wary of it for no particular reason. I've enjoyed um, all of his, uh, <clears throat> all of Ruben Oslin's other movies, but um, I uh, I'm always a little wary of the whole, this movie is an assault on the 1% or whatever. You know, I'm always a little wary of that. Cause I'm like, is it though, you know, like, you, you know, really the 1% is going to watch this and be like, wow, we should consider not being rich anymore. You know? Um, so I don't know. Um, it's kind of like the parasite discourse, but parasite is, Parasite is a great movie regardless, you know, regardless of any of the class dynamics or whatever. And also, like, sometimes I balk a little bit at this, at this really absurdist, high-level satire. Uh, because it makes me think of, um, it makes me think of uh, Sorry to Bother You, that uh, that movie that came out a few years ago. Yeah, and that I remember, was really interesting until the last third of it where things yeah, were fucking that, insane. That's exactly how I felt. I was like, man, this is a really, it was a really interesting movie. And then there's a twist that happens and it's just like, 
But then again, you know, I'm thinking afterwards and I'm like, well, how do you end a movie like that? I don't know. You know, like, how do you keep up that level of absurdity throughout the whole movie? You know, so it's, you know, I don't know. Uh, it, but um, this is all neither here nor there because I am going to watch it, of course. And um, no matter what. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's uh, it's but it seems like a high degree of difficulty to do this kind of movie. But, yeah, I don't know. I'm looking forward to it either way. Well, I mean, uh, obviously, without spoiling it, I can say he did more than just make a movie showing us that capitalism is bad and eat the rich. Like there's, mm. it's very layered. There is a lot more to it. There are some fantastic performances in it. I was, I literally laughed my ass off for most of the movie. Even when we got to some of the scenes where I, I wasn't a big fan of for most of the movie, I was just laughing hysterically, even though like a lot of the theater wasn't laughing at certain parts. Some of that shit I thought was hilarious, but also like, I think if you like dark humor, I think you'll like this. It's not, I wouldn't say it's pitch black, but I also wouldn't say I have a good grasp on what that is. So, mm, <laughs> so, gotcha. Cause I laugh at a lot of shit. You probably, you, you know, you may not laugh at, but sometimes like there is, there's always typically humor in the absurdity. So. And speaking of the great performances, I mean, you hear about the, the tragedy of this, this lead actress that's in this movie. Um, I don't know how to say her name. Charles B. Dean uh, Creek? Crike? I don't know. Do you know about this? Did she, did she play Yaya? Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, she's like the main female lead. Yeah, Azar, she played Yaya. Yeah, no, I don't know the tragedy. What happened? She fucking died, dude. What? Um, yeah, she died um, in August, uh, on August 29th of this year. Yeah, she was admitted to like a hospital. She was 32 years old, and she just like was admitted to the hospital and died. Um, they think that she had some kind of um, viral infection in her lungs or something. It's like really like, it wasn't like a car accident or anything. It was a real tragedy. I don't know. They say that like, uh, I'm looking at it now. It says the autopsy results are still pending. Like it wasn't, you know, it was, it wasn't like drugs. It wasn't a car accident. It was like an actual medical thing. They just haven't figured out yet. It's fucked up, man. It's, it's insane. That is really fucked up. I had no idea. Yeah, she was fantastic in this movie. Uh, yeah, it's uh, kind of a shadow hanging over the whole thing. Um, yeah, it is. I actually, I'm kind of glad that I didn't know that till after I watched it for selfish reasons, clearly, because like I think it could impact how you view the movie, mm-hmm. uh, how, how you view her performance. But either way, that's that's tragic, man. It looks like she was like 32 years old. Yeah, brutal. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry to bring the uh, conversation there down. Yeah. There. Yeah. Really. Thanks for sharing that with me and the listeners. Appreciate <laughs> it. Um, either way. Yeah. That. That. Uh. No. That fucking sucks. But hey, watch the movie. She gave a fantastic performance, and uh, and you know uh, that that's I guess uh, the only positive to say about that. Um. Anyway, that's all I got. You know, there's more. I don't get me wrong, guys. I'm sparing any new listeners uh, and my co-host for that matter for now, but. I've got I've got a little more Halloween fun in the chamber. Okay, I watched a ton of scary movies uh, in a very short amount of time, which I will get to in due time, but not this episode. So, oh God, okay. will you get to it? Please, please, I hope oh, you forget about some of it. I know I, <laughs> I have a list. I have a list I've written down. Uh, hey, don't don't Halloween shame me. You know, I can't help it that I enjoy the season. Look, I'm not Halloween shaming you. It's just, uh, dude. That, I would be fatigued like three Halloween movies in, you know, like it's, I admire it, honestly. Um, you know what? You know, pitch that up the street. I don't have time for that. Okay. 
How well, what do you mean? Com- complimenting you? No, I'm not going to take that backhanded compliment. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I mean, I'm far too busy, you know, reading books and going hey, to the opera. You know, I really admire it, honestly. I read um, the synopsis of some of these movies before I watch them. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, let's jump into these movies because uh, you know I'm not going to give you the whole backstory, although I would love to, just to shame my co-host. But the plan was to do another movie, but we decided, hey, we're going to switch gears and we're going to do a couple of noirs because it's noir of Ember. And uh, we decided to do a couple of Robert Mitchum classics. And I do mean classics. Uh, Out of the Past and Night and the Night of the Hunter. So uh, which one are we going to cover first? Um, yeah, I, I think we should probably do Out of the Past first. Out of the past is, uh, you know what? You know what? I'm not comfortable. No, I'm not comfortable leaving it that, leaving it at that with our <laughs> I was, listeners. I was I'm wondering f- if you, uh, if you, if you caught that at all. Yeah, I'm gonna fucking tell him. I'm gonna fucking tell him. So, we were gonna watch um, a movie called Red Beard, which is an Akira Kurosawa movie um, that you know is a classic and whatever. And he's John's favorite director. And we were gonna watch it and talk about it. We were really, you know, we really wanted to come out of the gate after a David Thompson episode strong. And so I watched about 30 minutes of the movie. I fall asleep. I'm going to watch the rest of it the next day. And I have just horrifying nightmares because Redbeard is about a, uh, a young man who uh, is basically, basically commandeered into being uh, a doctor at a local hospital. And for some of our long-term listeners might know, I used to be a registered nurse and I used to work in a really... Uh, uh, horrifying uh, nursing home slash uh, hospital overflow ward, um, and it was a really bad experience for me. Almost, uh, almost made me lose my mind. So I'm watching this movie, and I'm like, you know, I'm not one to use the word triggering, but this was, uh, you know, this was tough. And so I messaged John about it, and John was like, "Dude, like, come on, man! Like, we don't have to watch this if this is like, you know, causing some whatever." And I was like, "I mean, I'll watch it, but like." It, it is causing me to have like some fucked up dreams and nightmares and shit. And so anyways, John was cool. And he was like, no, let's just do a couple of Mitchum uh, noir movies for like noir Vember, you know? And I was like, okay, cool. That sounds more fun than watching the rest of this movie. So then today it's time to record, you know, I'm glad we're going to talk about these Robert Mitchum noir movies. And here we go. I knew it was going to come. I knew the resentment. I knew the mockery was going to come. I knew you were too nice about it over the phone. I knew you were going to like attack me and be like, oh, what's the matter? Couldn't watch Redbeard? Sure enough. Hey, I exactly what happened. To be fair, I did not attack you. I did not belittle you or berate you over this. I was just saying we had a different plan. But unfortunately, my co-host decided uh, that, that maybe we should go a different route. So, hey, I'm just trying to be the good guy here, and you're trying to paint me in a bad light, okay? I, yes, I am. You are the bad guy. <laughs> you, are, <laughs> you are a bad guy. You are passive-aggressive. Um, Look, you, you know, are... that, that part's true. Maybe all that's true. <laughs> but, but, you know, as I was sending those text messages, and I was, like, angrily hitting those letters, um, I was cursing your name uh, as, I, as I was doing it. So. Well, you know, uh, that's what you get for trying to be a nice guy over text. You know, uh, I'll true. take you up. I'll take you up on it and be like, sure, let's watch the Robert Mitchum Noirs then. Yeah. Um, nice guys finish last is what I always say. That, that's the point of this. That's the <laughs> point of this whole thing. <laughs> nice guys finish last. Okay. But anyways. E- either way, in all seriousness, like, you know, 
it, it was totally cool that we couldn't talk about a masterpiece from a god of cinema. And instead, we get to talk about two brilliant movies, one of which uh, I'm beginning to kind of agree with the statement you made about it. But we'll get to it because there's a little backstory with that, oddly enough. Uh, so let's talk about Out of the Past first. This is a a Mitchum classic, uh, you know, which honestly, look, I'm going to tell you. The the other name for it in the United Kingdom that you can find out on Wikipedia if, if you want it there, it's it's build uh, build my gallows high. Oh I'm yeah, gonna, I'm gonna tell you that's a better title. I oh, mean, yeah. across the board, it, that's the same name as the novel. So yeah, dude, that's a much better title in my opinion. And also one of the best lines from the movie. Oh, absolutely. Build my gallows high, baby. That's great. Yeah, um, dude. I mean, there are so many. I mean, just like with any, just like with any. Uh, with any noir, there are so many good lines in this movie. But yeah, uh, so basically, oh, sorry, you want to go ahead and just like give the you know little little plot synopsis? Yeah, yeah, I'll just read you guys synopsis real quick, then we can jump into it. So basically, a private eye escapes uh, his past, and he's in a small town. He's running the gas station, and a guy shows up, and apparently, you know, it's from his past. And then the rest of the movie kind of unfolds in between showing us. What happened in the past? All obviously the double crosses, the femme fatales, the uh, you know morally questionable uh, people in this movie, with typical of any noir, and uh, that's pretty much it. But there are some great performances, including Robert Mitchum, who's obviously amazing. So uh, tell us about it, man. What what's your experience with this? This is one of my very favorite film noirs. I kind of want to approach this. If you're cool with this, I want to approach this from two different angles because I, I think there's two different things going on here, in, in at least to me. Uh, one of them is this is just a great noir and would have been a great noir um, had there been basically anybody else in this role, right? Like if you if you put Dana Andrews in this role, this is still going to be a very watchable, really great film noir. The language and the dialogue is perfect. I mean, you know, this is three years after Double Indemnity, and this takes that hard-boiled dialogue and just... I don't know, man, just, just amps it up even more. You know, it's just so the dialogue is so good and just the noir photography and the, the whole story is great. Like it's a great noir in and of itself, but then we have Robert Mitchum and that is, I feel like almost a separate conversation because Mitchum is, is truly one of the greatest actors of all time. I think you can put him up there with, uh, you know, people like Cary Grant. Um, and this is probably his first fully formed performance. Um, if that makes sense, the, the first time that the Mitchum that he was able to bring all of himself to, to this, um, to a role, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Let's talk about the movie first. I, this dialogue, man, I, I, I don't know. I, I've got a bunch of quotes pulled up. I'm just going to, I'm just going to hit a couple of them. Uh, she says to him, and Jane Greer is the is the femme fatale in this movie, and she's obviously very good. She says to him, I don't want to die. And he says, neither do I, baby, but if I have to, I'm going to die last. <laughs> oh, and yeah, then, that, that's one of my favorites. Oh, man. And then uh, she can't be all bad. No one is. And he says, well, she comes the closest. Uh, Mitchum just has, I mean, and this is, this is, uh, uh, I'll, I'll do two more. Uh, she says, this is the one we talked about earlier. Don't you see you've only, you've only me to make deals with now. And he goes, well, build my gallows high, baby. <laughs> that is, man. Oh man. Oh man. And then the, the last one, which is, I think it's my favorite. 
I didn't know what I was doing. This is her. This is the femme fatale, Jane Greer, talking to Mitchum. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything except how much I hated him. But I didn't take anything. I didn't, Jeff. Don't you believe me? And Mitchum comes back with, baby, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's very, it's very Don Draper-esque. Yes. You know, some of his responses, the way he smokes cigarettes. Yeah, I mean, even even like uh, she says, did you miss me? And he goes, no more than I would my eyes. You know, and that is a that is a corny line said by anybody but Mitchum. You know, Absolutely. I mean, and, and this is this is one of my favorite ones. I said I would stop, but um, this is Mitchum talking. I never saw her in the daytime. We seemed to live by night. What was left of the day went away like a pack of cigarettes you smoked. I didn't know where she lived. I never followed her. All I ever had to go on was a place and time to see her again. I don't know what we were waiting for. Maybe we thought the world would end. It's like, (laughs) dude, you can't fuck with that, man. Like, you just can't. It's incredible. No, I agree. I mean, I there's there there is so much in this movie. I I don't particularly, I I looked at a couple of noir lists, and it's typically in the top three. Uh, sometimes it's number one, sometimes it's number two or three, but like, it's always up there. I love it. I don't know if I can rank it that high, but nor am I like a noir aficionado. Like I haven't seen all the noirs out there. Uh, but there are, there are a few that I, I, I enjoy more than this, but Mitchum is, is the really the thing that kind of brings it all together. Well, let's talk about Mitchum, uh, because I think, you know, I think it can, I think we and by we i guess i mean me and and you and anybody who really talks about movies i feel like we've gotten really good at talking about the work that a director does right there's a whole there's whole twitter accounts that are dedicated to you know one perfect shot or whatever and composition and you know um you know people are it, it's if stanley kubrick did it well people are good at talking about it you know people are good at talking about the you know, the compositions and the frames and the, you know, the, those kinds of things. But I, I feel like we're not very good at talking about acting. And I, I'm including myself in this too. Uh, whenever you, whenever you talk about acting, there's, there's always just kind of a like, well, he did a really good job. He, he's a really great performance or, but it doesn't dig into exactly what it is about that performance. And I think one of the few people to talk about it is our boy, David Thompson. And I want to just briefly kind of read slash paraphrase um, what he talked about, what he talks about uh, Robert Mitchum, because he's really good uh, at writing about stars and what they bring to the table. Um, so he says, uh, there's an intriguing ambiguity in Mitchum's work. The idea of a man thinking and feeling beneath a calm exterior, that there is no need to put acting on the surface. And I want to dive into that a little bit because the Mitchum persona, the types of roles that he was good at, because he really kind of made his bones off of um, these RKO B pictures uh, in the 40s. And out of the past was the most successful one. Uh, out of all these like B pictures that he made, and really it was was it is similar to High Sierra in that it is the that was the beginning of Bogart's um, you know uh, persona, and this is the beginning of of Mitchum's persona. You know the first kind of complex performance that he has, and I think that one of the things about Mitchum is that 
he is very calm on the outside, right? He gives the impression of somebody who is thinking on the inside, right? Now, not thinking on the inside, like we, we know this character is thinking and feeling on the inside, but how do we know that? We don't know it through the story. There's nothing that the camera is doing to show us this. It's all in performance. It's all in performance. Mitchum is showing us a man who on the outside is very calm, cool, and collected to an almost absurd degree. But we always know, we can always see him thinking. We can see him feeling, right? We can see him feeling and falling in love with this woman, even though there's nothing on the surface to indicate it, right? He's not saying anything romantic. He's not getting dewy-eyed. He's not... He's just looking, but he is giving us the impression that under this calm surface, there is a a fountain, a, a spring of emotion and thought behind those 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 heavy lidded eyes of his. And I think that is more valuable than any type of big, huge histrionic performance that an actor could give, you know, any kind of, to me, that is, this is better than Brando and on the waterfront, not because it it involves better talent, but it involves something that only Mitchum was capable of. This guy was, this guy was just capable of presenting that idea that still waters run deep idea on screen with seemingly no effort. And it is, it's fascinating to watch. I don't know. Does that make sense? Does that does that feel true to your experience of him and his performances, specifically in this movie? No, absolutely. I mean, I because you know when when you look at like especially I I think we I I pick these two because they're both great movies and and we love them both. But it's also interesting once you dive into him as an actor because you're like we're out of the past. He is the great voiceover, the snappy dialogue. He's He's calm on the surface, but he's the thinking man, like you said. Mm-hmm. But when you put these performances next to each other, he's a he's a wild animal in Night of the Hunter, literally. Right. right. So it's dude, he can give you out of the past, and then he can give you Night of the Hunter and Cape Fear. And he's there's something about his ability. And and I and when I when I say this, I'm saying it knowing I'm guilty of it at times. I don't think he gets the credit he deserves for being a great actor. Right. Right. Like, because he really is, he's a, he's an American staple. I mean, he is, he is one of the greatest actors of all time. And honestly, I don't give him enough credit whenever I start discussing actors, like whenever you start discussing, you know, we, we all, when we think of the old days, we think, you know, old Hollywood, we're looking at Humphrey Bogart. We're looking at, uh, obviously we're just sticking with men. Like we're looking Humphrey Bogart, uh, Marlon Brando, like you're, you're the big names. And Mitchum is always like, yeah, he was good, but I feel like no offense to who I'm about to name, but I feel like Mitchum is sometimes put like on a level of John Wayne acting, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. John Wayne is an American God. I mean, dude, he's, he, he was, he was fantastic, but he was also the Duke. Like that's mm-hmm. it. Didn't matter what he was in. So with Robert Mitchum, I'm sorry. They're, they're not even on the same planet in terms of what they bring to the table and what they can do in a movie. So no, I, I 100% agree with that assessment. I really like the way he put it too. Uh, Mitchum is just, he, he's next level, man. You cannot, you cannot teach what Mitchum had. You either have it or you don't. 
I will say this about Mitchum too. I, you know, and this may be controversial, but I, I, I stand by it. I, I really like Bogart. I do. I mean, you know, some of Bogart movies are my favorite movies, but I will say, I think, I think Mitchum does the Bogart. Cause what is the Bogart performance? The Bogart performance in Casablanca and high Sierra to have and have not to big sleep. The Bogart performance is the man who is stuck in a bad situation but he's got to keep calm and he's got to get himself out of it. Right. That's the, you know, he's the, he's the trustworthy guy who you can trust in a dark world. Right. And who is nimble and smart enough to get himself out of the situation. This is not the exact same as the Mitchum character, but I think it's close. And I think it's closest in a movie like out of the past. And I will say for me, prefer like me, I think that Mitchum is better at that than Bogart. Um, in, and specifically in Out of the Past, I would take, I think his performance in Out of the Past is deeper and more complex than Bogart's in, say, even one of Bogart's best movies, like The Big Sleep. Um, and, you know, people may not agree with that, but I think, I think Mitchum has um, a deeper, there's a deeper, per, there's a deeper personality there. He's capable of giving us that impression that, you know, he's thinking, he's feeling, he's, you know, uh, whereas Bogart, I feel like Bogart seems to say the lines as if he just came up with them on the spot. That's not Mitchum. Mitchum's thinking. Mitchum's feeling. Mitchum, he's a tactile presence on the screen. And I I prefer that, honestly. Um, but I also think Mitchum has more range because just to go, just to kind of piggyback off of what you were saying, you know, the out of the past is a very kind of archetypal performance of the film noir you know, character. And I think Mitchum does it best in this movie, but then his next, you know, big movie that I, or I should say critically acclaimed movie is the Anthony Mann or sorry, Nick Nicholas Ray Western uh, lusty men. And the lusty men is about, you know, Mitchum plays a, uh, I think I've talked about it on here. Actually he plays a retired rodeo champion and uh, his name is Jeff too, in this movie, by the way, um, in, in the lusty men. Um, but he plays basically the same role, but instead of that, that, that quick thinking beneath the surface, like we get in out of the past, we get a deep, deep, deep sadness to Mitchum's performance. Right. So it's the same character as out of the past, but it's adjusted a little older, a little wiser, lonelier, sadder. Right. And then to bring it full circle, what you said, the night of the, the night of the hunter, which is completely unhinged, he is able to take his instrument, which is himself, his face, his body, his voice. He's able to take his instrument and turn it into a expressionistic uh, shout of evil, right? Of deep American evil. And I'm sorry, Bogart didn't have that range. In fact, I would say the only other male actor I think who had that kind of range was Cary Grant. And Mitchum, Mitchum is definitely on he, – he's just – he's on that level, I think. And then you, he moves on to something like El Dorado. He gets a little bit older, and he fits right into the Howard Hawks vibe. He's instantly, you know, uh, Dean Martin's character in Rio Bravo, but – but better, you know, like it's, it's insane, dude, his range and his, 
depth of feeling. I mean, it's 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 shocking how how great of an actor he really is. And that's not even uh, those are just I'm just talking about his big movies. I mean, he made a ton of just random B movies. And then when he got older, you know, he's in, you know, the the um, Friends of Eddie Coyle. And um, I mean, he's in a lot of stuff when he gets older. You know, Ryan's Daughter, Midway, The Last Tycoon, Farewell, My Lovely. Like, it's, you know, I don't know, man. Mitchum, I, I'll, I'll shut up about Mitchum by quoting the very last uh, word in David Thompson's entry on him, which is untouchable, which I think, <laughs> I think sums it up better than anything else. Um, but there are other things about this movie, too, that are great. What about uh, Kirk Douglas, though? I know you got some thoughts on Douglas. He's one of your favorites, right? Yeah, I, I wish that Douglas would have been in it more. But when he was in it, he was great. Like, mm. and dude, I mean, I'm sorry. Like, when you when you look at smooth delivery and just having that screen presence that just very few actors, and I'm including people I love, like Pacino, De Niro, uh, very few actors can be comfortable on screen. Like, look, I love Marlon Brando. I think he's arguably probably top three greatest actor of all time. But Marlon Brando was never comfortable on camera. He just Mm -hmm. wasn't. He was a method guy. He got into character like, and all that's fine. And it works great, but he wasn't comfortable. But guys like Kirk Douglas, guys like Cary Grant, and to a lesser extent, I'm going to include Clooney because I'm a big Clooney fan. Yeah. You, you have this comfort on screen and it just puts everything else at ease. Every scene when he shows up to the door and Mitchum is clearly surprised because he didn't expect to see him there. And like, I, I didn't even feel like it was a menace. That's how comfortable it is with Kirk Douglas. Mm-hmm. Like he shows up with his guy and Mitchum's at the door and like Mitchum's trying to run off with the woman he was sent to find. And I didn't feel, I didn't feel anything like Kirk Douglas was there to, Oh, I caught you or I'm going to fuck you up. It's like, no, I'm just here hanging out. Want to see how things were going. Like I never really felt a menace and, and he's, he's so smooth. dude. Yeah. It's like, um, that, that's such a great scene actually. Um, now that you're talking about it, um, the, the scene where, where basically, cause yeah, like, like, like John said earlier, you know, Kirk Douglas hires Mitchum to go find Jane Greer basically. And then, you know, Mitchum falls in love with Jane Greer and, and, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Douglas comes hunting, you know, and he, he knocks on that door and surprises Mitchum. That's such a master class in acting for both of them. Cause they're just like, it's just like two balls of light, just like hitting off of each other. Like, like Douglas is so like, just kind of calm. He's one of those guys who is, is calm to the extent that like, but but he's like uh what am i trying to say like walk softly but carry a big stick you know oh like, absolutely he you can tell he's one of those guys yeah 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 the kind of guy who never really gets angry but you know would you know probably feed you to an alligator and watch you know watch you die you know and uh he's just giving off that whole persona and like you said he's calm because at the end of the day he's not there to like cause any ruckus you know he's yeah this just, isn't like a gotcha moment for him yeah he's just like oh just check it up and dude instantly instantly you can see mitchum go into not panic mode but he goes into his that that head starts turning right like his inside he's thinking okay how am i gonna get out of this how am i gonna get out of this what am i gonna say okay now i gotta say something and he says it and then he goes back to thinking and then he says something again like it's just it's it's like watching two boxers in a ring, man. It's it's such a great scene. Um, 
God, what a movie, man. I, I love this movie. This is one of my yeah. favorite noirs. I, I actually was toying last night. We all know my favorite noir of all time is uh, uh, In a in Lonely, Lonely Place. Place. Yeah, and I was thinking, like, is this my second favorite noir? It might fucking be, man. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, dude, it's, you know, there's a lot here. Like, and before we move on to Night of the Hunter, like, I, I do want to say, like, they're, you know, guys, this is streaming on HBO Max, and I think it's streaming on Criterion, so you can watch it. So go watch it if you haven't seen it. If you haven't watched it in a long time, go revisit it. But, um, dude, I just love anytime you deal with things about, can like, can you outrun your past? Like, mm. can you, can you really change? Like had Mitchum really changed when he was at the gas station, you know, with, with his assistant, um, who oddly enough represents also something really interesting in this world because he can't speak and he can't hear. So that's a whole different thing because I think there's a representation there, but, um, wait, of what don't, 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 don't blue ball us here. Well, it's like, when you look at, he's in a small town and that's not an accident. So you've got a small town and you've got a big city gangster. So the old, and, and we, we both come from small, we, uh, we both come from, so we know how it is, you know, and once you've been gone from the city long enough, once you've been gone away from Kentucky or Florida, it doesn't matter, Mississippi, Alabama, once you've been gone a long time in return, you could be guilty of it as well, which is like, I am, am I, are these people, am I better than them? Like, are they, are they dumb country folk? Like we don't like, and I'm not saying that's the case, but I'm saying like, that is what happens a lot. So when you, when you have this big city criminal show up, it's like, this guy is really smart and really knows what's going on. And to everyone else, he's like, Hey, can you speak? Are you dumb? Like what, what's going on? Like they think he's a moron, but this guy's, he's got it figured out. He knows what's going on. I'm like, I think that's very clear from the closing scene. So I just Mm -hmm. really think like, I'm not saying I have exactly figured out what he represents, but I think there is a reason. It's not just happenstance that this character is, is, uh, blind or deaf and, uh, and can't talk is all I'm saying. I think. Right. 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 No, I get that. Yeah. Cause it's like, that the the guy gets there looking for him and he's like, hey, you know, what are you, some fucking idiot? You know, like he's yeah. just like, he's like so mean. And it's like, dude, calm down. And then like, it's like this guy, like I think, you know, towards the end of the movie, you start to realize, oh my god, this guy's like the, he's like the smartest guy in the room. You know, I mean this this movie had a big budget behind it. It was beautiful. It was it was like some really like just like dark shot uh, shots, a lot of shadows. Uh, yeah, I mean, dude, it's it's a fantastic. Noir, clearly, but I, I still don't think I can say it's, it's up there for me. I just, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a personal favorite of mine. I've made people watch this movie, uh, in the past. It's, um, I just, man, I love it so much. And, um, I, I, one other thing I like about it, and then I'll, I'll, I'll shut up about it. Um, it, it, it goes to all these different places. Like we get to go to South America, which is just, you know, it's Acapulco, right? It's not, um, well, I guess I shouldn't say South America, but the the Latin America, you know, Mexico on down is is always kind of a fun location in noirs. You know, I'm thinking of like Touch of Evil and um, Gilda is another great uh, noir that takes place in South America. And so we get we get that. And then, but we also get San Francisco, which is obviously, you know, the home of. Uh, uh, Maltese Falcon and uh, the Big Sleep and other Philip Marlowe uh, noirs, 
And then we also get a little bit of New York too. So it's like, we, it's almost like a best of, we get all these different, um, all these different fun noir locations and, and make no mistake about it. Noirs are, they are romantic, right? They, they are romantic with a, not in a love sense, but in like a, you know, in a, in a, in an artistic sense, they're, they're really, really romantic. And there's this amazing scene where like, um, him and, uh, Jane Greer, uh, run into this, um, this bungalow and like the, the rain, like, like forces the door open and there's, you know, there's just like these palm trees and it's tropical and the rain and the lightning. And it's like, dude, this is, I mean, I, I like, I'm sure there are other people out this out there like me, but like, to me, I'm like, this is cinema. Like this is, <laughs> this is the fucking peak, man. Like I, I cannot imagine a world that I would want to disappear into more that I would want a purple, Cairo, purple rose of Cairo myself into than you know, certain scenes in this movie. But, um, yeah. Anyways, like I said, I'll shut up about it now. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's just, it's one of those things, like I said, we can, there's a, there's some themes there, but for the most part, like this, this is a very stylish noir, but I mean, it's about Mitchum. It's about Mitchum. Yeah. It's about these characters. Like, so it is, it's a very stylish noir, but also at the same time, it's like, no, it's, it's like you watch this because Mitchum is amazing. And, and let's talk about, how, in my opinion, even more amazing his performance is in Nine of the Hunter. Now, Nine of the Hunter is a movie we tried to do a few months ago, recorded a oh, whole God, episode. Yeah, I had forgotten a, about that. And honestly, it was a really good episode. We did a really good deep dive into Nine of the Hunter and Blade Runner. And we had a tech issue, which we've been fortunate. We've been doing this podcast a long time, haven't ran into a lot of tech issues, but we had one. One of our best episodes, though, like legit. Yeah. And we just fucking lost it. So that that really sucked, and it kind of left a bad taste in our mouth in terms of revisiting this movie. But that's by no means because of the movie. So uh, I, I'm I'm glad that we could kind of piggyback this on out of the past because I do think this is uh, probably Robert Mitchum's best performance, in my opinion, uh, in terms of what I look for in a performance. Mm. And when we did that original recording, you said something. I don't even remember, know if you remember saying it, but you said this might be the greatest American movie ever made. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, I still don't know if I can wholeheartedly get on board with that sentiment. And clearly you were probably speaking uh, with a bit of hyperbole, but I, I, I'm, I'm closer to being on board with it than I was. I've watched this movie either for the podcast or for myself five times in the last two years. I literally just watched it for this episode uh, earlier today, just to kind of just to, cause I didn't need to, but I wanted to like it's streaming it's on Tubi. It's on Pluto. You can watch it a lot of places for free. So watch it if you have it. And if you have it in a while, revisit it. Either way, his performance is nothing short of astounding. And mm. it helps that this is a noir, but I would say it's more of a noir bastard because it really fits into the genre of like American Gothic more mm. than it would be a noir. Very similar to a horror movie or... Like it's it's kind of it took some it took some true in, a real inspiration about a about a man who was a serial killer uh, in West Virginia actually so like there is some real life ties there to making it more or less a horror movie but his performance is fucking unhinged I mean mm -hmm. directed by Charles Lawton and you know uh, clearly anybody who is a movie fan knows he was one and done and man if you're gonna walk off the stage. 
after a, after a winner, you know, God, he, he, he might have the greatest filmography in the history of cinema. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, dude, what, what, what is there to say about Night of the Hunter? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think Night of the Hunter is, is, I'm not going to say it's the greatest American movie, but I think it does deserve to be talked about in the same conversations as something like Citizen Kane, like Vertigo, you know, like some of these, um, these classics that were made in the studio era that have just gotten better every year and gotten more important every year. I think Night of the Hunter, you know, and you can even throw stuff like some like it hot in there, maybe Sunset Boulevard. You know, I, I think Night of the Hunter is, um, it's such a, it's such an important movie about American evil, you know, and Mitchum's character in this movie. And for anybody who doesn't know, I mean, the plot is, you know, most people have probably seen it. Um, even if you haven't seen it in a while, it's about, Mitchum, who's a, like you said, a serial killer, who's um, he charms a unsuspecting widow in order to get his hands on ten thousand dollars in stolen bank money, who uh, that was hidden by her husband, who has been executed. Um, and you know, I mean, I guess, I mean, you know, the Mitchum. I don't even know what to say about Mitchum in this movie. He's just a white hot ball of of evil. And it's it's stunning, really, to watch his performance and how expressionistic it is, and how I mean, it, that's what I mean when I talk about his range and why I think you know he's he's on a whole other level than someone like Bogart or something because this is the range that he had. He had he had the range to be the coolest you know film noir private detective ever, and then he had the range to do something like this, and it's just unbelievable the way that he's using his voice, the way that he's using his body, but also. Dude, the cinematography in this movie, this this might be the most beautiful, most incredible cinematography I've ever seen in my life. I mean, Charles Lawton, you know, like you said, he only made one movie and he he wanted to make kind of a nightmarish mother goose story. The the original author of the novel wrote a bunch uh, did a bunch of storyboards and sketches and he hired uh, uh Lawton hired uh, James Aggie, AG, I never know how to pronounce his name, uh, as a screenwriter because he was from the South and had experience writing about the great depression. And then Lawton studied silent films because he wanted this to look like a silent film. He wanted it to have the same, um, you know, shadowy, you know, black and white, you know, a lot of, a lot of black and white movies, you know, sometimes not a lot of them, but sometimes you get a black and white movie and it's just, there's, there's only two shades. There literally is just black and white. And it's like, why is this movie in black and white? This is not one of those movies. This is, there are 10,000 shades of gray in this movie. And it's, I mean, some of the scenes are just so beautiful. You you can't even take it, you know, and not beautiful in like a lush um, escapist way. Like I was talking about with out of the, out of the past, but beautiful in like a horrifying way, you know, like a, like a just terrible beauty, you know, like gothic, um, you know, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Man. Like words fail. Like, you know, like it's just so, I can't believe a human being made this, you know, it, it, it I don't know. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, dude, there, there are scenes in this movie that are like a painting, like, you know, where, you know, obviously getting into spoilers a little bit, the scene, I mean, when he kills the wife, so he marries this woman to get closer to the kids to find out where the money is. And she she is a problem. She's in the way. She hears him uh, being mean to the little girl. She's not even all there. I think she kind of snapped anyway. 
So mm-hmm. when she's laying on the bed, the lighting and the shadows and the way she, it's almost angelic and he's in the shadows raising the knife like he's a devil. Mm-hmm. And they don't show. They cut away. They, they cut away as he kills her. But I mean, it's a pretty graphic movie because then then a fisherman finds her finds her body like floating at the bottom of the lake. The point being unbelievable. This, oh, yeah. Way. Unbelievable I mean, shot. Very, very eerie feeling. Very, very horror movie like. But um, but I'll tell you, this movie really taps into a few things like, you know, for longtime listeners, you know, we both grew up. Uh, Jacob and I both grew up uh, going to church and seeing a lot of things in the ministry and. I've met, like, I'm not going to say I've met murderers, but I've met preachers who carried themselves the way he does in this movie. Like the mm-hmm. way he talks, the way he controls an audience, the way people can become hypnotized. This movie is really a kind of an edgy, at the time, kind of an indictment on 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 Christianity, on, on mm-hmm. Protestantism, like whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a movie that's like, no, like this man is manipulated. Look at how taken these townspeople are with his behavior. The hand bit is my favorite hate and love. And he, he has the spiel that he gives them. And he's like, you know, and love wins and trumps. And he tries to do that later to a woman who is aware of what he is. And it's hilarious. Uh, Mm -hmm. because she's like, I don't, you're fuck you're a fucking idiot. Like get away. Like you're not getting the kids. Like, um, right. But he's so he, he you know he's he's clearly schizophrenic. He clearly has some psychological issues. But my favorite thing in the whole movie that I think kind of sums up his performance and sums up his character is he gets shot at the end by a woman with a shotgun. He's trying to get the kids back from her. Now, mind you, this woman seems nice, but she ain't no saint. She just goes looking for kids at the riverbank and like just brings them home and makes them work. That's weird, but whatever. <laughs> um, she shoots him. He howls like an animal and runs off limping into the into the barn. She calls the cops and she's like, I've got a thing trapped in my barn. <laughs> like didn't even call him a man. Didn't even call him an animal. She says, I have a thing trapped in my barn. It's so good, man. This I movie's by the- brilliant. This movie's fucking brilliant. Played by the great Lillian Gish, too, by the yeah, way. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I, I think there's a lot to there's a lot to pull apart. This, this is why I say it's the greatest American movie. Not that, you know, not that I mean, not that any kind of, you know, that, that doesn't even make sense. You know, it's a kind of a stupid thing to say, but But I know uh, your sentiment behind it. Like that's why yeah, I was saying, like, I got I'm getting on board with agreeing with it. Yeah, it's like it's like the most American movie almost in a way. You know what I mean? Because the story of people like this guy, right? Those are the people who mostly built this country or not necessarily built the country, but were in charge of in charge of the country. Maybe as a better way to say it, you know, maybe men who weren't as psych, you know, psychopathic as this guy, but kind of blustering men who are confident and want what they want and are okay with, um, human life being sacrificed to, you know, I mean, if, if this character in this movie, I mean, if he, uh, if his life had been differently, I mean, is it, is it crazy to think he would have been Henry Ford, you know what I mean? Or, or, or some, you know, some Titan of industry like that, you know, I mean, I don't, this kind of personality is the type of personality that, that is just now the, the, like, it's just crazy enough to like, man, if you could dial it back a little bit, you probably could have been like 
like I said, Henry Ford or something, you know, because he's so charming and so, you know, handsome and so gregarious. And it's like, dude, if you put your mind to anything other than making this $10,000, you might could have been president or some shit someday, you know, but instead he's not, he's a little too far off. And so he's just an evil psychopath, you know, and Lillian Gish, you know, I, I don't think it's an accident. You know, Lillian Gish, one of the one of the inspirations for this movie that Lawton talked about was Birth of a Nation and Intolerance. And in Intolerance, Lillian Gish is God, I want to get this right. She is the woman, um she is the woman rocking the cradle. Yeah, but sorry, between the different times, there's a symbolic image of a mother rocking a cradle representing the passing of the passing of generations. And uh, it listed in the credits, it's Lillian Gish as the eternal motherhood, right? That's the that's the role that she plays in Intolerance, one of the the great silent movies. And I don't think it's an accident that that Lawton cast her in this role as kind of the if there's anything that's going to keep the devil away, it's going to be the crotchety old woman who's not going to put up with this shit anymore and will fucking kill him if she gets a chance, right? There is something deeply, deeply American about that, you know, and I always think of, you know, I always think of Huck Finn, you know, the, 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 the great American novel, you know, um, there's a section in Huck Finn where the narrative goes from, uh, Huck and Jim just hanging out on the Mississippi river and becoming friends. There's a, there's, there's a part of that where it goes from that to a kind of, scorched earth southern hellscape right that's hot that's violent people are killing each other there's fucking slaves right this kind of atmosphere exists in a lot of william faulkner novels it's not southern gothic it's more of just southern dystopia almost even though i know i know it's not dystopia i know that you know but it's like it's just this hellscape and that representation feels so true in a lot of great works of art. And I think it's here too. I think it's the spirit of it is here in this movie in night of the hunter. And, you know, it, the spirit of America is in this movie. It's in the fucking, in the fucking grain on the film, right? It's, I don't know how he did it. You know, Lawton was famously very self-conscious. There's a Hitchcock story where Hitchcock talks about, Lawton second guessing every line reading he did, you know, he was so, Oh no, was that, was that good enough? What I should, you think I should do it like this? He was so self-conscious and so second guessing himself and you know, how he was able to, to make something like this, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe that's why, you know, maybe that personality was necessary to make something like this movie and then never make anything else ever again. You know, it, it, it really, really um, is close to the dark heart of America in a, in such a unique and powerful way that, 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 you know, that's why I think it's, it's, it's the greatest American film, even though that title is essentially meaningless. Um, well, I just love the fact that, that it is this film, like you said, that it that encapsulates America. It is, there's so much on there. I mean, I, I was watching it and I was like, this is one part grapes of wrath. One part It's funny. You mentioned Huck Finn because there's a small chunk where their the kids are on the river running from trouble. Huck Finn, mm. and then you just throw in like a little shade of like fucking Silence of the Lambs. And it's <laughs> like, this is the fucking recipe you get. And I just want to say a man that captured America so well 
he was born like just to be clear guys he was british born like so i think that's really important um you mean lawton yeah lawton captured america he captured what it was like he he like it wasn't an accident that like when, when he when he adapted this like uh, it's not an accident that she finds these kids on the riverbank because like post depression that was happening parents would just leave their children in random places because they literally couldn't afford to take care of them they would dump them on fire station houses they would leave them in towns they would just dump them everywhere so it's like she just took these kids in and like right. thankfully she was good like it's very clear like the movie ends on a very good note he you know, she, she takes care of these kids. They have Christmas and she's doing her best. And like, that's really, uh, you know, unfortunately I don't think it's much of the case anymore, but like in a, in a very romanticized view, that is how you want America to be. So right, I don't know, man. Right. It's, it's just really yeah. interesting. Uh, it's fantastic. man. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, you know, and I want to shout out a couple of other things. Stanley Cortez was the DP on this movie, the, the cinematographer. Yeah. Um, he also shot, he also worked with Wells on the Magnificent Ambersons and he, Lawton, you know, had very little experience visually as a director. So this was, this was very similar to an Orson Welles thing. You know, when Orson Welles came to Hollywood, he needed um, Greg Tolan to basically teach him, you know, different things about camera lenses and heights and lights and, uh, all, all these different things and all the different um, the the difference between a nitrate print and a regular print, you know, uh, and he law needed someone to teach him this stuff. And Stanley Cortez was um, was more than happy. And like, dude, that's that's pure artistry, right? Like where like, no, I don't know any of the technical stuff, but I've got I've got the fire of genius within me. And once you tell me the technical stuff, then I'll be able to describe to you what I want. You know, and that's man, oh man, that, I I can't believe this guy didn't make another fucking movie. It's mind blowing. Um, but also, uh, I want to shout out a couple of other things. Rather than shooting in traditional takes, Lawton uh, would have the crew like slate, like you say, action at the beginning of a film reel, okay, and then he would let the camera roll continuously until the reel ran out, so he could direct the actors without waiting to reset the camera. So he's like, and a reel of film is about 15 minutes long. So he's basically saying action and then, you know, they're going. And then instead of stopping the film and resetting, he's coaching the actors as they're, you know, as they're like basically filming. Right. And he also talked about, um, Lawton had very extensive experience with Brechtian acting and Brechtian acting, not to get off on a whole big thing, but is a basically a thing where you let your, you let your actions guide the acting style as opposed to, you know, psychology, right? So you have a certain action that you're going to do and you do that first and then you let the emotion come after the action, right? This is a very specific style of acting uh, that Lawton had experience with and then he coached Mitchum on. So, I mean, this is like, this is like the best of both. Like you said, this is Mitchum's best performance. Like, it's the best of both worlds. It's it's genius meeting genius and Mitchum being able to adapt himself to this new style of acting, right? That brings out this kind of feral performance, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, and just my eyes just glazed over this little note. 
According to Lillian Gish, Lawton was very unsure of himself on set as this was his first time directing a film. And when someone would give him a suggestion, he would start talking about fears that his whole vision was wrong. I mean, you know, imagine being insecure about this. I can't, you know, imagine being insecure about some of these shots and some of these, this vision. Um, But thank God he, 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 I mean, if that's not, if that, if that's not an inspirational tale, you know, like yeah, <laughs> to, to all of us, you know, creatives out here, if you think that your ideas are fucking bullshit or whatever. Yeah. Well, so did Charles Lawton and he made the night of the hunter. So he literally thought the night of the hunter, all these ideas that I have for it, they're fucking ridiculous and stupid. Uh, so, you know, that, that tells you right there not to listen to that negative voice inside of you. Yeah. I don't know, man. I, I'm, I'm monologuing at this point. Um, Anything well, it's else? True. Anything else? If you if you put your mind to it, you too can make a movie like Night of the Hunter. Just take that. Well, let's not. <laughs> let's not go that far. Let's not. Uh, you know. <laughs> but I mean, guys, we picked we picked two classics. Like you don't like we'll 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 say this anyway, but we don't have to say this. Watch the movies. You know they're they're streaming HBO Max, Criterion, Tubi whatever the fuck. Like there's so many streaming services. Thankfully that that makes it possible to be able to watch these movies right now. Um, so go watch them. I mean, Robert Mitchum, come on. Like, so. Yeah. And there's probably, I would imagine most of you have probably seen these on some level, but just maybe haven't seen them in a while. Worthy of a rewatch and worthy of greater consideration. Uh, yeah. That's, that's all I would say. And also let us know what you're watching this noir Vember. You know, what are some of your favorites? Maybe there's a blind spot for us. Maybe we could check them out and talk about them. So, uh, cause I mean, you're much more into noir than me. I, I like noir, but there's a lot I haven't seen. So uh, anyway, yeah, let us know. But noir Vember, baby, we're doing it. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, we're we're kind of doing it. You know, we'll, okay. we'll see. All right, let's end the um, fucking episode. You son of a bitch. <laughs> Do you have anything to add before we get out of here? No, let's wrap it up, man. Cool. Well, guys, if you are new here from the David Thompson episode, thank you. We appreciate you listening. Any of our old listeners, you know, who's been with us since the beginning, we thank you as well. If you are listening and skip the Thompson interview, go back and listen to it. You will not be disappointed. Uh, We have a fascinating conversation with him about movies and TV, and it's just always a pleasure to speak with him and, and, and pick his brain on stuff. So you know the drill, guys. Rate and review wherever you listen. Tell your friends. Tweet about us. Instagram. Whatever the fuck. Anyway. Guys, have a great Noir Vember, and we'll see you next week here at the Silver Screen Video.